heroic defense of Stalingrad. The Soviet army turning the Nazi six-month assault into the most ghastly military disaster in German history. No nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. When he was a teenager, a staph infection nearly took his life. A few years later, he was alone in the Pacific on a life raft, praying that his rescuers would find him before the enemy did. God answered those prayers. It turned out he had other plans for George H.W. Bush. The United States, committed to the concept of free market and a productive private sector, is ready to do its part to encourage rapid and peaceful change toward political and economic freedom. CBS 47 investigative reporter Kara Rucker shows us that help offered to renters is hindering landlords. Kara? I guarantee you any time a product can be passed off as something more expensive, it will be. When they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. That's just a sample of the things the capitalistic system has given us in only 160 years. The idea of poetry as an arm of class war disturbs the sleep of those who do not wish to be disturbed in the pursuit of happiness. The poet, by definition, is the bearer of eros and love and freedom and thus the natural born enemy of any police state. It is the ultimate resistance. The poet, a subversive barbarian at the city gates, challenging the toxic status quo. The common understanding is that the memory of a goldfish is a mere three seconds long. And if I had the sense of humor of one, I'd wait three seconds and repeat that line. But I like to think I'm a little more sophisticated than that. A little. Of course, this well-known fact about the storage capacity of our fishy friends isn't true. Not by a long shot. In 2003, Jonathan Lovell, a researcher at Plymouth University's Institute of Marine Studies, trained goldfish to remember and respond to certain sounds. The sounds were played at regular feeding times to get the fish to associate them with food and with the usual location where food was given to them. Basically, if you play it, they will come. Same goes with lots of fish, apparently. But why is the goldfish myth so persistent? 
A possible explanation for this really stuck with me. Another researcher in the field of aquatic anamnesis, Cullum Brown, said in a story for Live Science, quote, I suspect it's got more to do with making us feel good about putting them in a tiny bowl. It probably says more about us than it does about the goldfish, end quote. U.S. history classes are notoriously abysmal, particularly when it comes to covering atrocities that the U.S. government has committed. But they also tend to exaggerate so-called progress that the U.S. has made internally while also carefully manicuring and overrepresenting the role the U.S. has played in the greater advancement of human society. This distortion leaves U.S. students in a bit of a confused and confusing place. Because of what we can call strategic omissions and self-serving emphasis, students in the U.S. end up believing that nothing that has ever happened is connected to anything else that has ever happened, and that everything that has happened has happened for no reason at all. Speaking broadly, we have no memory nor understanding of the greater currents and forces in the world around us. So this raises the questions. Are we the goldfish we want our goldfish to be? And if so, who's supplying the bowls? What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's gonna live forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with Mick Insider, any of the pop artists, because they said they took our imagery. And we got paid page rate. This issue opens with a bang. Well, at least it opens with a bunch of noise. We open up the book to see an immediate two-page spread that focuses heavily on Thor destroying as much of the Chitauri fleet as he can get his hammer on. Iron Man is there too, I guess. He's in the background, and it's really hard to tell it's him apart from the stylized blue glow of his jet boots. I'm sorry to inform you that this issue is yet another that's light on content to describe, unless you want to hear about every single punch and blow, which I'm not prepared to give. Or maybe. We'll see how the script goes. The two pages following our bombastic opening constitute the beginning of a fight to the death that's going to last us pretty much right up until the last few pages of this whole book. The final showdown between Captain America and Herr Kleiser, his ultra-mega super-nemesis, who's in less than a third of the story. And a good thing, our life is all too short. The two are in radio contact somehow, and Kleiser taunts Captain America, accusing him of having learned nothing since 1945. Captain America responds by claiming that he's learned how to pilot a Tornado IDS jet, and then impaling Kleiser upon its nose cone spike and flying it into a fuel tank trailer. Again, this is the second time we see the character who most explicitly represents the ethos of US jingoism 
flying a plane into something as a means to an end. But there's no way you can convince me that the writer Mark Miller intended it to be anything more than just what was on his mind at the time, because 9-11 had just happened. He saw an enemy plane. That's enough for me. The next several pages are just the fiery combat between the fake Nazi, Herr Kleiser, and the real Nazi, Captain America. I'm kidding, of course. Things aren't exactly that cut and dry. But there is truth in such jest. The imagery in this issue and the next really hits on something that just about everyone in the Eurocentric circles of the world now believes. That the United States fought World War II for benign reasons, and more simply, that it won the war. It's from this notion that two falsehoods were born. That the United States intervenes in world affairs in the name of freedom, a nebulous notion at best, and that the United States is even capable of doing so. Okay, I'm about to get real deep in the weeds Marxist on you here, so bear with me. In Capital Volume 1, Marx proffers many descriptions of labor under a capitalist mode of production. But this one is particularly apt. Quote, The place of the slave driver's lash is taken by the overlooker's book of penalties. All punishments naturally resolve themselves into fines and deductions from wages. And the law-giving talent of the factory Lycurgus so arranges matters that a violation of his laws is, if possible, more profitable to him than the keeping of them." End quote. Capitalism concentrates and streamlines production. That's what made it revolutionary compared to feudalism. But there's a very simple model we can use to show that despite that efficiency, the way capitalism is organized doesn't result in the freedom that the U.S. government loves to claim it brings to other countries. Let's say you work at Lex Luthor's baby poisoning factory. All day long, you screw a sippy cup top onto each of the bottles of baby poison that the conveyor belt brings you. You can get 100 done in a day, and you make $20 an hour doing it. Then, one day, you come in to find that a big, funny mechanical arm has been installed right where you used to stand and someone is handing you a control panel. Now, thanks to the magic of technology, you can push a few buttons and get the lids on 200 bottles of baby poison in one day, double your previous output. So what happens now? In a rational society, one might expect that because you can now hit your previous goal of 100 bottles of baby poison by lunchtime, you might get the rest of the day off, or barring that, that you might now get double your pay. After all, your new labor output merits that. But that doesn't happen, does it? Is your boss now required to give you a pay raise? No. Is your boss now required to shorten your workday? No. Do you have any say in what happens to you because of changes to your job? Most likely not. To call this freedom would be ludicrous. And this isn't even asking simple questions like, is it freedom to choose between working and starving, between paying rent and buying groceries? 
This is the kind of freedom the United States has been inflicting on countries since World War II. This is the kind of freedom that colonial settlers brought to the North American continent. This is the kind of freedom that socialist projects like Cuba, the USSR, and China so threaten. Further, it's important to understand that fascist Germany was the epitome, the extreme of this freedom. Freedom for the owners of industry to exploit their workers. Freedom for the workers to work or starve. Or, if they were unlucky enough to be born as one of the ultra-oppressed groups like Jews, Roma, or LGBT+, the freedom to go to a work camp or a death camp. Now, industrial fascism like this is a very easy enemy to include in any story. But considering that the opposing figure here is a grim, gritty, quote, realistic Captain America, all decked out in red, white, and blue, the forces at play here seem a little too alike for comfort, especially if, as the Ultimates and fans of it so desperately seem to want, we critique it by that very realism. How did Nazi Germany rise from being a humiliated nation on the brink of collapse after World War I to being an industrial, super-powered war machine in less than two decades? The answer is foreign capital and exploited labor. We'll start with the first one. Let's talk about the Bank for International Settlements. The BIS was ostensibly created as an uninterruptible instrument for Germany's war reparations to be paid to the victorious Allied powers of World War I. Per its charter, it wouldn't be closed or seized or influenced in any way, whether in war or in peacetime. In reality, the bank was used for the exact opposite purpose. The Bank for International Settlements was not only eventually integral to Germany's looting of countries it conquered, but from the start, it was also a major thoroughfare for British and US money to be funneled into the giant German corporations that both fueled and fed from Germany's rapid militarization. Companies like the Chemicals Trust, IG Farben, the one that made the gas used in the death camps, and Volkswagen, and you know what Volkswagen does, because they're still around. Fun fact, so is IG Farben. It just goes by a different name and has a chemical plant that's all of a 45-minute drive from my apartment. The importance of IG Farben to the accelerating post-war German economy can't be overstated. It produced most of the chemicals for the German war machine. But it was itself rocketed to prominence and financial stability by German-American money when it went public. Thanks to the Bank for International Settlements, which one of the founders of IG Farben helped create, surprise, surprise, IG Farben and numerous other companies from multiple industries around the world, but particularly the United States, could contribute comfortably to and benefit from what author Charles Higgum calls the ideology of business as usual. Higgum continues, quote, Bound by identical reactionary ideas, the members sought a common future in fascist domination, regardless of which world leader might further that ambition. End quote. And to pull another quote from Higgum's book, Trading with the Enemy, quote, What would have happened if millions of American and British people 
struggling with coupons and lines in the gas station, had learned that in 1942, Standard Oil of New Jersey managers shipped the enemy's fuel through neutral Switzerland, and that the enemy was shipping Allied fuel. Suppose the public had discovered that the Chase Bank in Nazi-occupied Paris after Pearl Harbor was doing millions of dollars worth of business with the enemy with the full knowledge of the head office in Manhattan. Or that Ford trucks were being built for the German occupation troops in France with authorization from Dearborn, Michigan. Or that Colonel Sosthenes Bain, the head of the International American Telephone Conglomerate, ITT, flew from New York to Madrid to Bern during the war to help improve Hitler's communications systems and improve the robot bombs that devastated London. Or that ITT built the Focke-Wulfs that dropped bombs on British and American troops or that crucial ball bearings were shipped to Nazi-associated customers in Latin America with the collusion of the vice chairman of the U.S. War Production Board in partnership with Hermann Goering's cousin in Philadelphia when American troops were desperately short of them, or that such arrangements were known about in Washington and either sanctioned or deliberately ignored, end quote. ITT was allowed to continue doing business with Germany and Japan all the way up until 1945, even though it was technically classified as an asset of U.S. intelligence. President Franklin Roosevelt himself signed the Trading with the Enemy Act only five days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, specifically so that the U.S. entering the war would not disrupt the flow of international capital. The capitalist class does not care about you. They care about profit, and they'll send you to war for it. Sometimes they don't even have to send you to war to make a profit off your mangled body. And here we come to point two. Part of the reason IG Farben, Ford, ITT, Standard Oil, and all the rest were able to operate so profitably and so efficiently in Germany was the sometimes literal machinations of an American systems designer named Charles Bedeau. To the occupied areas of Europe, Bedeau introduced and implemented methods of factory production that have been described as brutal and that brought about frequent strikes, which of course the Nazi Sturmabteilung stormtroopers were all too happy to break, I'm sure. I'm talking about an organization that's going to control not only the party but every aspect of the state itself. From Capital, quote, At the same time that factory work exhausts the nervous system to the utmost, it does away with the many-sided play of the muscles and confiscates every atom of freedom, both in bodily and intellectual activity, end quote. And American corporations were happy to allow the Nazi government to inflict this debilitating, freedomless exhaustion on German workers all for a few dollars more. And this is to say nothing of the actual forced labor camps, which both the United States and Germany had in World War II, 
and still have today. Remember, the United States has the largest forced labor system in the entire world now, with 25% of all prisoners anywhere. Indeed, in this very issue, there's a two-page anti-tobacco advertisement that cites a 1993 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that states that exposing prisoners to enough secondhand smoke to damage their health could be considered cruel and unusual punishment. Over the next 20 years, cigarettes were supposedly phased out from prisoner use in prisons. Ultimately, in 2014, cigarette possession was banned for prisoners in federal prisons, but not for the guards of those prisoners. Now, in the U.S., prison guards can supplement their income by providing cigarettes for a raging prison black market, while massively underfunded state health and wellness programs are struggling to provide addiction treatment resources for these same prisoners being preyed upon by the system. You explain to me what's free and democratic about that. Through this lens of class and material analyses, indeed the most realistic of all approaches, we see in the Ultimates that a U.S. American super soldier going toe-to-toe with an alien pretending to be a Nazi really fails to hit its intended emotional and subtextual marks. It's shallow and ill-considered. It brings nothing to any conversation, realistic or otherwise. And we shouldn't necessarily expect our big dumb superhero comics to challenge us constantly or to make us reconsider our fundamental notions of geopolitics or the very nature of truth. But I'd really prefer that they didn't benefit from our being the victimized goldfish and thus contribute to the construction of our fishbowls. Because this specific comic, with this specific imagery, comes with a flawed understanding that needs to be unpacked. Turning the page, we see the explosion from Captain America flying the plane into the gas tank. The dialogue on this page and the next consists of roughly 43% meaningless one-liners from Captain America and 57% grunty exertion noises from either him or a now badly burned Kleiser as the two of them finally engage in hand-to-hand combat. There's really not much to say about it, except that I can't help but muse over how much black ink has been wasted on this travesty of a comic. The two continue to exchange blows into the next two pages as well, although now that they've found a rhythm, they've got the wind to banter with each other over the fighting. Kleiser taunts Captain America as Kleiser lands blow after blow, suggesting that the time spent in the ice has slowed Captain America down. He then tries to intimate something disparaging about the serum in Cap's body, but Cap cuts him off with the woefully dreary line, Will you just shut up and die? This delights Kleiser, who recognizes that he's struck a nerve. Cap yells at him again with a lovely, get off me, you freak, because this Captain America really is a thick-headed lunk. To further psych our hero out, Kleiser assures him that this fight doesn't matter in the slightest because the planet is going to be blown up in 18 minutes anyway. The two continue fighting, and then Kleiser drops this, quote, This is all your fault, you know. If you hadn't interfered in our affairs, the Earth would be ticking with Swiss watch precision right now. 
none of this would have happened if you hadn't stopped that rocket, end quote. In this realistic universe, Captain America basically won the war. Thus, the United States won the war. But this isn't really the case in the most realistic universe of all, ours. Weirdly enough, in Vox of All Places, an article was published titled The Successful 70-Year Campaign to Convince People the USA and Not the USSR Beat Hitler. In it, there's a pretty revealing graph. In 1945, the recently liberated French were asked in a survey which country was the most responsible for the defeat of Nazi Germany. Despite having been emancipated from Nazi chains by the U.S. and the British, a whopping 57% of French respondents said that the USSR deserved the most credit, while only 20% claimed it was the USA and further only 12% said the UK. Per the graph, there has been a dramatic reversal in this belief in the last 70 years. And it's not because history has been made more clear. Quite the opposite. Despite all the available facts and figures, such as the USSR's 27 million person sacrifice to the anti-fascist cause, and the dates of now-forgotten liberatory battles like Operation, Operation Bagration, public memory has shifted, and the USA is now seen as the largest contributor to Hitler's downfall. To quote the book Storming the Gates, How the Russian Revolution Changed the World, quote, it was the Soviet Union that smashed Nazism. It was the westward Soviet counteroffensive that began in 1944 and liberated the peoples of Eastern and Central Europe from the scourge of fascism, liberated the concentration camps, and led to the collapse of the Hitler regime. In fact, the United States and the British only opened up the Western front of the war against Germany in 1944 when it became evident that the Soviet counteroffensive would otherwise leave the Red Army as the sole force to liberate all of Western Europe." End quote. It's easy to understand why the US and the UK would not want the USSR to liberate all of Europe from fascism, considering how much money the corporations that run the US and the UK were making off those fascist regimes. Again, capitalists don't care who they throw in what meat grinder so long as profit comes out. To quote again from Charles Higgum's Trading with the Enemy, quote, When the war was over, the survivors pushed into Germany, protected their assets, restored Nazi friends to high office, helped provoke the Cold War, and ensured the permanent future of the fraternity, end quote. And here, the fraternity is the shorthand name Higgum gave to the specific group of multinational corporations that were involved with this. We finally get to see what's going on elsewhere in the battle. Hawkeye, surprisingly, has foregone his trademark bow and arrows and is making use of a mounted machine gun on the back of a Humvee barreling across the melee. Now, that's realistic. He's screaming at the Black Widow on his comms, which I guess he just apparently loves to do since that's pretty much all we see him doing whenever it's his turn for dialogue, and ranting about how he has no air support and that he and his soldiers are being overwhelmed by the enemy. He demands to know where the Widow is and what she's doing. Cut to the Widow. She's in the main building and she's found Janet Pym, the Wasp, 
who had been captured by Herr Kleiser prior to the big invasion and the reveal that the Earth was about to be blown all to hell. She tells Hawkeye all this and reports that she can't find the supposed doomsday weapon anywhere. She asks Hawkeye what happened to his ground support, and he responds that they're busy evacuating Phoenix. Then he's interrupted by a crashing Chitauri warship. Widow pleads for an update, and he yells at her to get off the line. Hawkeye really is the dark horse contender for least likable hero in this universe, and that's saying something. He then radios Iron Man and angrily accuses Tony of taking out his team with his reckless tactics. Tony rebukes this and explains that it was actually Thor who caused the ship to crash, neutralizing a bunch of shield soldiers, which is the only left-wing thing Thor does in this entire book. Thor commands Tony to lose altitude immediately, and then uses his thunder and lightning powers to destroy a major section of the Chitauri battle fleet in one supercharged moment. This moment takes two and a half pages to represent. The artist, Brian Hitch, often gets praised for being, quote, cinematic, but one has to wonder if that doesn't just mean stagnantly flashy. Turning the page, we get the reaction that Nick Fury, head of S.H.I.E.L.D., has to this violent display. He's in disbelief and he barks out, quote, I thought this guy was supposed to be a pacifist, man. Over the radio, Thor responds, quote, a pacifist with a big scary hammer, General. And that's eerily fitting, right? The United States claims to be a progressive force for peace in the world, yet it constantly terrorizes and subjugates most of it with the big scary hammer that is its military. The debris from Thor's onslaught crashes to Earth like the victim of his previous attack, and I can only hope that it takes with it more S.H.I.E.L.D. soldiers as well as Nazi aliens. Yeah, make it look like an accident. We're about to get back to the fight between Captain America and Herr Kleiser, but I think now is as good a time as any to look back to last issue. Kleiser mentioned previously that the Chitauri dismissed the Nazis' extermination of Jews in the Holocaust as a, quote, little eccentricity. And I think that we can apply a pretty apt parallel here to what we've been talking about previously in this episode. Charles Higgum wrote that the collection of multinational corporations that were involved with the Bank for International Settlements didn't care who the hell the de jure world leaders were at any given time, so long as the fascist corporatocracy continued. This is further evidenced by the actions of a man I'm sure many of you have heard about, Alan Dulles, the first civilian director of the Central Intelligence Agency. In 1943, Franklin Roosevelt and then UK Prime Minister Winston Churchill attended the secret war summit known as the Casablanca Conference. Joseph Stalin, chairman of the Council of People's Commissars of the Soviet Union, couldn't be there because the USSR was too busy turning the tide of the war by winning the Battle of Stalingrad. It was at this conference that the two attending allies decided two things. One, that it was too early to open a Western front against the fascists in Europe, which greatly distressed the USSR, since they had just lost over a million soldiers at Stalingrad, and two, 
that they would accept only an unconditional surrender of the fascist forces. To quote Roosevelt himself, quote, In our uncompromising policy, we mean no harm to the common people of the Axis nations, but we do mean to impose punishment and retribution in full upon their guilty, barbaric leaders, end quote. This was no good for Alan Dulles, who was the director for the Office of Strategic Services Swiss headquarters at the time. Before and during the war, Dulles had established numerous working and personal relationships with many of the fascist social and business elite. After news of the unconditional surrender demand was released, he was quick to reassure his circles in Europe that that would not be enforced as official policy. In fact, he held a meeting that year in Bern with a U.S. investor in the Bank for International Settlements, a Nazi prince, and the architect of the Holocaust, Heinrich Himmler, to discuss plans to hammer out a deal between Germany and the United States that would leave the Reich, with all its business dealings and government contracts, intact, but without Hitler as its head of state. This is a stunning betrayal of both countries' governments, yes, but it wasn't a betrayal of their actual leaders, the multinational corporations lobbying to make policy. These corporations and their ilk are still the leaders today. In 2022, Volkswagen spent $1.8 million to influence the U.S. government's decision-making process. And if you still believe that this kind of control resembles democracy at all, look no further for a repudiation of that than the actions of this same company that same year. In 2022, Volkswagen rejected a proposal by its own shareholders that would have forced the company to disclose its supposed efforts towards its stated climate goals. Now, we are down to the wire climate-wise, and everyone knows it. The notion that a company can withhold climate data or hide that it's simply not doing anything to help should be galling, and it should be made worse by the fact that this particular company has such a fascist pedigree. But it's not. It's not made worse because it's not surprising. That fascist pedigree is corporatism. It is capitalism. The mechanisms of corporate control over people's lives and well-being are one-to-one -one with fascism. They are fascism. And if you can't see that by now, then you're still a victim of its massive propaganda machine, the machine I and so many others are fighting against. Not only are the corporate entities that enabled and sustained the Nazi war effort still around and making policy, but indeed, some of the very leaders of the U.S. who were then sympathetic to the cause suffered no consequences, and their families still hold positions of esteem today. As an example that is painfully appropriate to everything we've discussed so far, I'm speaking specifically now about the family of one George W. Bush. Uh, yeah, Suzanne. I finally got your name right after yes. how many years? Six years? Eight years. In 1931, the same year that the Bank for International Settlements was formed, 
George H.W. Bush's maternal grandfather, George Herbert Walker, and H.W.'s father, Prescott Bush, hosted together the Third International Congress of Eugenics in New York City. In 1934, Prescott Bush became managing director of Union Bank and assumed control of their German operations. At the time, Union Bank was experiencing windfall profits from the merger of the German steel manufacturers Thyssen and Flick thanks to the support of Hitler's government. In 1945, the U.S. Treasury Department issued a report revealing that United Steel had supplied multiple parts and materials for Nazi war munitions, sometimes up to 50% of the total used by the Nazis. United Steel was banking with none other than Union Bank. Prescott Bush was, in essence, the Nazis' U.S. banker. That same year, a young naval officer named Richard Nixon found Nazi communication records that were apparently compromising to our friend Alan Dulles. In return for burying these, Dulles partially funded Nixon's very first political campaign, his congressional race against Jerry Voorhees. I think that's how you say his name. Against Jason Voorhees. In 1952, Prescott Bush was elected to the Senate. With his influence, he ensured the selection of Nixon as Eisenhower's vice president. Years later, Nixon's innumerable political favors to George H.W. Bush would be instrumental in Bush's rise to the White House, which, in turn, would pave the way for George Jr. There are a million more connections, but we just really don't have time for it. Check out Family of Secrets by Russ Baker for the deepest dive you can get. Getting back to it, we're with Nick Fury as he directs S.H.I.E.L.D. Command to override all budget restrictions and spend as much money as necessary to, quote, initiate light-sensitive mode for 60 seconds, end quote. That's cool, I guess. We didn't need that money for roads or hospitals or anything. We then cut back to Kleiser and Captain America. The butt-naked Kleiser is using a piece of concrete stuck on the end of some rebar as a club and is absolutely wailing on the captain amidst the flames. He's continuing to promote the farce that there's something special and good about the United States by monologuing to Cap that Nazi command were truly terrified of the super soldier specifically because he was an American. Kleiser's deep hatred for Steve Rogers really shines through here but it's sort of confusing. As he knocks Steve around, Kleiser says that he could always see, quote, that skinny little army reject under all that muscle mass, end quote. Then he pulls Steve's bloody face close to his and asks, do you know that I've wanted to eat you since I saw your face on the recruitment poster? Why? To transform into him? He just implied that he hates Steve Rogers as Captain America because he doesn't feel like Rogers lives up to the abilities that were given to him. But then, it can't be for those abilities because Kleiser doesn't need them. He's just as strong as Captain America. And as we'll see, Captain America doesn't even beat the guy in the end. It really feels like Miller knew he had to get three issues worth of pages out of this fight and then just first drafted all the dialogue. 
That's impossible. Sounds like rubbish to me. But the comic doesn't really give the reader time to process this because the whole conversation was just a pretext to have a gun barrel appear at Kleiser's temple with dialogue around it saying, quote, eat this, motherfucker. Of course, the fucker part is asterisked out, but don't worry, it's still super edgy. We turn the page to see that the gun is being held by an invisible Nick Fury. This is a callback to the fact that in the main Marvel Universe, Fury has a light-bending device that he regularly uses to hide himself. Despite being shot in the head, something Captain America can't survive, Kleiser seems pretty unfazed and reveals that he can still totally see Nick Fury. So I guess we lost out on all those roads and hospitals for nothing. Now begins a sequence that is going to result in one of the stupidest, most atrocious panels in comic books I have ever seen. Another S.H.I.E.L.D. Humvee is darting around the outskirts of Phoenix. A soldier is radioing to S.H.I.E.L.D. leadership that one of the largest Chitauri cruisers is coming down over the city, and it's too big to safely get everyone out from under in time. One soldier cries out, Mother of God, this is hopeless, how the hell are we supposed to handle something like this? To which our favorite billionaire war criminal responds, quote, Believe it or not, I've waited nearly 20 minutes for an opening like that. And I do believe it. I really truly do believe that Tony Stark was waiting around, unable to scratch his ass in the Iron Man suit, for 20 minutes until someone said something that he could use to make himself look cool. He flies up under the plummeting spaceship, grabs its hull, and ignites his flying boot juice to the fullest degree. Another convenient brain genius gives Tony a second opportunity for spectacle by claiming that there's no way in God's name that even Iron Man can stop that ship from falling. Tony responds, quote, who says I'm trying to put the brakes on it? Then he signs off and uses his thrusters to reroute the behemoth away from the city. The rest of the page shows that he was a little too late to save the tops of some of the tallest buildings, but he got the ship out past the main metro area and in between some farms. A ground unit finds Tony's landing place and pulls up to see him totally immobile in the suit, but don't get your hopes up because he's fine. They turn him over to see that he's vomited in his helmet, and he's ranting about how the ship was too big and he thought he could handle it, but he couldn't. He reveals that he doesn't believe he's as smart as everyone thinks he is, that he just can't do this. The shield soldier ministering to his suit tells him that his battery is totally drained, and again, it seems like that was pretty easy to do. What a shit superhero. Anyway, Tony reiterates that he can't save the day like people expect him to, and the soldier asks, well, if you can't, who will? Despite Tony being correct for the first time ever, he gives the soldier a meaningful look, glances around the apprehensive crowd watching him, and then switches back into hero mode and directs the S.H.I.E.L.D. team to plug him into a streetlight to charge his suit back up. And I can't believe that Stark International's proprietary repulsor technology runs on anything as prosaic as electricity. He then warns the soldiers that if anything happens to him, they'll be responsible for the imminent joblessness of 150,000 Stark employees. What? Is there a dead man switch in all Stark contracts that says if Tony dies, everyone gets fired? 
Companies don't need executives. Uber operated without a C-suite for like months in 2017 and nothing happened to them. And despite all the over-the-top one-liners and the constant grandstanding, nothing in the previous 11 issues has given us any indication that this Tony Stark is anything but self-assured. Even the fact that he needs alcohol to fly in the armor communicates only that this guy fears his death, not that he's been worried he's not good enough. And this also doesn't make sense because he's already told everyone he's dying. This whole thing is such a weak and oddly abrupt tug at the heartstrings that it really falls flat. This is Miller relying on the reader's preconceived understanding of Iron Man as a character. He lets that do the legwork for him, even though this is supposed to be a break from the universe that gave those readers that character background and pathos. It's lazy and it's ironic that an established character trait can be so clumsily shoehorned into a story about that character. Honestly, it reminds me too much of the Justice League from last season. But hey, I promised you one of the worst comic panels I've ever seen, and here it comes. After Tony gets all ready to suck up all the electricity in Arizona, presumably including the electricity used for hospitals, air conditioning, and traffic lights, he implores the surrounding civilians to please stand back. He then catches a glimpse of the goofiest looking little black child smiling at him and giving him a thumbs up. My friends, my family, my comrades, I'm only guessing that this child is black because there's simply no way to be sure. Brian Hitch is, as one comrade pointed out to me on Instagram well before I started this season, and as we've discovered before, not known for accurately portraying people of color. That this child is black is not, statistically speaking, the safest bet, because according to the 2000 census, there were almost 10 times as many Latinx people in Arizona as there were black people but I'm assuming Brian Hitch didn't know that. This kid's ears are inhuman. His teeth are larger than his eyes. His hairline makes his age unknowable. But the worst part, of course, is how cynically this kid is deployed as an inspirational moment. Then, after Iron Man returns the thumbs up and flies off to continue the fight, the S.H.I.E.L.D. soldiers callously push the kid to the ground, which is the only realistic thing in this entire book. I might have made that claim before, I don't remember, but this one supersedes whatever came before it. There, I've covered my ass. I say this is one of the worst things I've ever seen in comics, but don't spend too much time fretting over what could possibly be the actual worst thing I've ever seen, because it's coming up in four pages. On the next page, we find that the Wasp and the Black Widow have made it to the control room of the Chitauri facility. Black Widow kills all of the Chitauri except for one and tries to threaten him into deactivating the super weapon that will destroy the whole solar system. This isn't exactly torture, but it's a great time to bring up that the Bush era was known for its use of enhanced interrogation, and liberal heroes today, like MSNBC correspondent Malcolm Nance, were integral to that. 
Oh, and also, the Biden administration tried to prevent information about the Bush administration's illegal torture of Abu Zubaydah, who was incorrectly accused of being an al-Qaeda leader. If you haven't figured it out yet, Joe Biden is a conservative warmonger just like George W. Bush, and it's high time everyone understood that so that we can actually do something about it. Again, these things don't stop. No matter whether it's dressed in Republican red or Democrat blue, the U.S. war machine marches on, destroying the planet and destroying the lives of innocent people, all in the name of the petrodollar. The invasion of Iraq was brazen, perhaps too bold, but they've learned from that, and now they just fund, quote, separatist movements and fight with drones piloted from air-conditioned rooms in Las Vegas. If there's an explosion, we'll wait about a minute after it's all over. Then we'll go upstairs and take a look around, see if it's all right for us to clean up. Naturally, the widow's threats don't work, so she simply murders the Chitauri scientist. The wasp isn't too thrilled, because now they have no one to even potentially translate the Chitauri control messages. Pivoting back to the fight involving Captain America, Nick Fury, and Herr Kleiser, Kleiser has Fury by the throat and simply tosses him aside after calling him a pain. He then, nakedly, hunkers over Captain America's beaten frame and says, Let me hear you say it. I surrender, Herr Kleiser. These were the magic words, apparently. An invigorated and enraged Captain America headbutts Kleiser and then socks him on the jaw. Taking the split second of Kleiser's disorientation, he grabs his shield and says, Surrender? With back muscles rippling, he raises the shield above his head, shouting this time, Surrender? With both hands, he slams the shield into the prone Kleiser's bare midriff, then, we get a full-page close-up of a bloody, disgusting Captain America pointing to the A on his cowl and screaming, You think this letter on my head stands for France? And that, that is the worst thing in comics I have ever seen. That's the shot everyone remembers and everyone talks about. I've been waiting to get to this one since the beginning. It's obviously a common joke from the Bush era that the French were cowards who gave up their country to the Nazis without a fight. And that was, of course, propagated by the fact that then-president of France, Jacques Chirac, refused to align with Bush and then-prime minister of the UK, Tony Blair, over the invasion of Iraq. France did not send troops to massacre innocent Iraqis for oil, and this earned them the ridicule and scorn of an entire nation. It's in this comparison between the supposed cowardly passivity of France and the valorous willingness to fight, quote, for what's right, of the United States, that we can tie up our loose threads. The same forces that led us to underestimate the USSR's contributions to World War II and to overestimate the U.S.'s are working here again. In fact, Captain America is the perfect nexus for it, because he fits neatly into both eras. Truly, he is a man out of time, just in time. 
many of you may remember the pomp and the display of rabid pro-America sentiment just after 9-11. Country music emerged from the conservative chrysalis it had entered in the 70s as the fully-winged, unhinged butterfly of war and xenophobia. TV shows like 24 showed the nation a world in which a brown person's bomb was just around every corner. The French, for all their numerous faults, did not deserve to be constantly referred to as cheese-eating surrender monkeys, although that particular joke is enjoying sort of a rebirth as a skewer of the era these days. My middle school actually did rename French fries to Freedom Fries. And again, freedom for whom? Certainly not for Iraqis, who were suddenly getting their houses bulldozed and their electricity and water shut off. Certainly not for us. According to a 2006 report from the Committee on Education and the Workforce, the Bush administration rescinded the right to workplace organizing for 45,000 disabled workers, 51,000 teaching and research assistants, 2 million temporary workers, and another 8 million workers in general, including 1.4 million nurses. The Bush administration's National Security Entry-Exit Registration System forced Muslims to register with the government and then denied them right of travel based on almost no concrete criteria. And this is to say nothing of the Patriot Act. Don't even think about asking about reproductive rights under Bush. Freedom for whom? Well, we've already answered that question. There's a reason for this pro-capitalism, pro-U.S. propaganda, and that is that it's necessary for anti-communism. As Captain America has so graciously displayed for us, the name of the game is comparison, or rather contrasting. But it can't be on a one-to-one, issue-by-issue basis, because through that lens, communism wins every time. More people can read in communist countries. People live longer in communist countries. Sex is better in communist countries. I'm not joking about that one, look it up. Food is healthier in communist countries. Healthcare and housing and education are better and cheaper in communist countries. Governments that work for the people actually do improve the lives of the people. I know that sounds shocking, but it's true. So then, what do we have to compare ourselves to so that the U.S. and capitalism, in general, come out on top? Well, that's an easy one. Dubious yet terrifying abstractions. There's a famous passage from political theorist and historian Michael Parenti that I'm going to quote in full here because it does such a wonderful job of highlighting the cynical opportunism of anti-communism in the Eurocentric world. Quote, If the Soviets refused to negotiate a point, they were intransigent and belligerent. If they appeared willing to make concessions, this was but a skillful ploy to put us off our guard. By opposing arms limitations, they would have demonstrated their aggressive intent. But when, in fact, they supported most armament treaties, it was because they were mendacious and manipulative. If the churches in the USSR were empty, this demonstrated that religion was suppressed. But if the churches were full, this meant the people were rejecting the regime's atheistic ideology. 
If the workers went on strike, as happened on infrequent occasions, this was evidence of their alienation from the collectivist system. If they didn't go on strike, this was because they were intimidated and lacked freedom. A scarcity of consumer goods demonstrated the failure of the economic system. An improvement in consumer supplies meant only that the leaders were attempting to placate a restive population and so maintain a firmer hold over them. If communists in the United States played an important role struggling for the rights of workers, the poor, African Americans, women, and others, this was only their guileful way of gathering support among disenfranchised groups and gaining power for themselves. How one gained power by fighting for the rights of powerless groups was never explained." End quote. The only way to pit the life of the average worker in a capitalist country against the life of the average worker in a communist country and have any hope of convincing anyone that the worker under capitalism has it better is to propagandistically hammer in vague, immaterial notions of freedom and liberty and democracy, notions I've already shown do not apply to citizens of the United States, into the heads of those workers and then claim that those wispy ideals don't apply to the worker in the communist country. In this way, we're made goldfish. We're plopped into small bowls with the expectation that we won't remember how narrow our view of the world is. But just like real goldfish, we do outperform expectations. We notice and we remember, but that's only half the battle. It's simply not enough to say, yeah, the United States is bad. Yeah, our bowls are small, but hey, what are you gonna do? Criticism and condemnation like this has to be accompanied by alternatives, by solutions, solutions that are already in practice and succeeding, despite what, understandably disinclined, corporate media may tell you. Those who are tired of the bullshit are misdirected into either nihilistic despair or hopelessly disempowered individualist philosophies. This is what makes anti-communism so powerful. This is why we have to debunk it so often and so vociferously. They say reality has a liberal bias. Well, no, it doesn't. It has a left-wing bias. We have the facts and the figures. We have the data. History has proven theory to be correct time and again. In State and Revolution, Lenin was correct about what would happen to Martin Luther King Jr. 12 years before MLK was born. In 1923, Clara Zetkin was correct about the relationships between the Proud Boys and the U.S. government in 2023. Marxism is a science. Leninism is a method of implementation. Together, their powers combine to form a liberatory philosophy with demonstrable material benefits. Communism improves people's lives. And that is the point. Wrenching his shield from the body and walking away from a now apparently subdued Kleiser, Captain America helps Nick Fury up, 
and the two of them decide to use what they refer to as the nuclear option. This means the Hulk. Cut to a chopper above their position, and some goonish shield guys are reveling in the cruelty of abusing Bruce Banner until he transforms into the Hulk. I don't really blame them for wanting to bully him, but it's also icky that they're soldiers doing this. It's not like they haven't committed their fair share of war crimes. But also, where has Banner been? The Triskelion was basically taken over by the Chitauri. Did they not think to secure one of the strongest members of the Ultimates? Did they just ignore him? When they left to come to Phoenix, did they simply surrender control of the Triskelion back to S.H.I.E.L.D.? What in the world is happening? This is one of the biggest plot holes of the book, and as we'll see, it's clear that Miller just wanted to prepare us for a cliffhanger set piece that he thought was amusing. The soldiers proceed to beat the snot out of Banner, but he isn't changing. This leads Fury to instruct the men to go to Plan B. He reassures them that he'll take full responsibility for whatever happens to the body if Plan B doesn't work. And here's another, far less meaningful error. Banner shouts to one of the soldiers, quote, what the hell does he mean by body? But here's the thing, Banner is in a helicopter a mile in the air with its door open, and he's not wearing a radio. How the hell did he hear what Fury was saying? And this isn't a deal breaker for me or anything. I mean, obviously that ship sailed with issue one, but come on. And I'm sure you can all see it coming. The soldier picks Banner up by his straitjacket and just tosses him out into the wild blue yonder. Our last page shows us the joyful callousness of the defenders of our freedom and democracy as they throw a man to his potential death. Greetings once again, listener land faithfuls. It's that time of year again to be filled with revolutionary spirit. Oh, who are we kidding? That's all year long. The joy and fulfillment of solidarity, the comfort of knowing you're laboring for the betterment of all. These are the liberties we enjoy. The freedom from hunger, the freedom to get sick and afford the hospital, the freedom to get ice cream at said hospital free of charge. I had to include that. We have so much ice cream. Please eat the ice cream. And speaking of people to eat ice cream in solidarity with, thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. Evan from Left of the Projector podcast, Travis Armstrong, Turn Leftist, Megan McGrory, Hatchet, Chris Marx, and those of you who are content in your anonymity. Thanks as well to Weaponized Apathy and Kaiju Sommelier for increasing their support. Another thank you goes to Closeted History Podcast for the generous tip through Collective Action Comics' link tree. The solidarity is much appreciated. We're very excited to announce our newest Destroyer of Empire-level supporter. Massive revolutionary appreciation goes out to David Barajas and Ray F., as well as the bonus material and their names read at the end of each episode, Destroyer of Empire-level supporters get a coveted seat on the council. 
giving them power to submit and vote on issues to be covered for full-length bonus episodes. If you, comrade, would like to support the show and the struggle, you can sign up for our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at pod. That's comics with an X. And tune in next time for the season two finale of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics! Action.